Well, good morning and kudos to you all for making it this morning, for being here. Um, and again, be safe out there. We'd love to see you tonight at the Reindeer Run, but understand if you don't feel like you can get out in the dark and in the snow. Now, whether we recognize it or not, um, we all, in some sense, long for significance. Some of us probably want it more than others. We want to make a name for ourselves or have our 15 minutes of fame. But in some small way, we all want to be noticed, right? We desire to be seen, to have, have meaning in our lives and give meaning to others. Every one of us feels the need to make a difference and, and not have our lives overlooked or come to nothing. Um, we don't want to be passed by or, or fade away into nothing. And the story that we're looking at this morning, which is actually in the book of Ruth, so you can turn if you would, to Ruth, echoes these kind of longings, these longings for significance, because this is a story of a very normal, mundane, everyday, otherwise insignificant family in Israel. And even as you're looking for that book, you're going to have a hard time finding it, because it's four pages long. It's a tiny little insignificant book in the midst of these great stories of the Moses and the Exodus and Joshua and Judges and the kings, and inserted right in there is about four pages. It's going to tell us a little story with a lot of meaning. And as we journey through Advent, we're, we're doing so with a the theme of the hopes and fears of all the years, taken from the Christmas song, Little Town of Bethlehem. And as we do so, we're tracing, if you will, the ancestry of Christ through the years, as, as all of these characters we're looking at have experienced hopes and fears throughout the generations, all the way back to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 through 4, and then on through Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12 to 21. And now we look to the book of Ruth for our third couple in this line of generations down to Christ, Boaz and Ruth. So if, you're, if you found it, it's okay if you use the table of contents too. It's right after Judges. The book of Ruth is, is one of the most beautiful and beloved stories in all of Scripture. It's an, it's an idyllic story. It's very well told. It's simple. It's heartwarming. It's a literary gem right there uh, in the middle. Of, if you've ever read Judges, it's really gory. It's bloody. It's gnarly. And then you get to Ruth, and it's kind of like a breath of fresh air. It's, it's three main characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, and a simple but very engaging plot. And tying it into our Advent themes, it's a story that begins with a whole lot of fear, with uncertainty, with grief, and with lament. And yet it's a story that ends just a few pages later with hope. It begins with fear, ends with hope, and it ends with faith and confidence Enjoy. So we're going to retell the story this morning and, and connect it at the end to ourselves today. So if you're in Ruth chapter 1, that's where we'll begin. Ruth takes place in the days when the judges ruled. And so this was after the tribes of Israel had come out of, out of Egypt in the Exodus. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, and then they, Moses brings them up into Moab and to the border, and he dies, and then Joshua leads them in. They conquer, they possess the land, and, and they're in the land right now. And, and several hundred years pass when there's no king in the land. This is what the book of Judges tells us. There's no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? 
at all. Okay, so no king in the land. There's just these judges that would kind of rise up and they would save Israel and rescue Israel from their oppressors because the people would sin and God would send an oppressor to judge them and then they would cry out in prayer and God would deliver them through these judges. So this happens. This is about between 1300 and 1000 BC. So about 3000 years ago, about 1000 to 1300 years before Christ. And in Israel as a whole, it's just a time of chaos. But then we have this little story that focuses in on one family in the midst of that chaos. And we discover that even in all of that, there are still God-fearing, devoted, worthy people in Israel. So here's how the story begins in Ruth chapter 1. There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So Naomi now has left with, in a foreign land. She's got two daughters-in-law to kind of take care of, and no man to take care of her or them, no man to provide for them. And in this culture, in this time, that was a big deal. It made them, as women in that culture, without a provider, without a protector, without a man, to, to vouch for them and protect them, advocate for them. She was destitute and vulnerable. That's where they were, destitute and vulnerable. They were with nothing, basically. And so she hears in verse 6 that Yahweh, God, the Lord, has visited his people and given them food. And in that, she decides to return to her people and to her land, back to Israel, back to Bethlehem. And she, in that moment, encourages her daughters-in-law to return to their families. Because to remain with her would, would be to remain without hope or a future. So here's what she says in verse 11. She says, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have Hope, there's that word. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband tonight and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Now, Naomi references here a practice that seems really unusual to our culture, and it's called leveret marriage. It was a kind of custom or code in this society, uh, which meant that a man's brothers, if he had any, had a duty, a responsibility to marry that man's widow if he were to die, to marry the widow and to provide an heir for the dead man through the widow. Seems a little weird today. We don't do that normally. Maybe some of you do, but that's not part of our culture. But it was, it was part of kind of the cultural code there then. And Naomi tells these women 
that this will be impossible because she can't have any more sons. She can't have any more brothers for their dead husbands for them uh, to raise up and then have a husband, for them to have a family and a future. So the only hope for provision for them, for a husband and a family, would be to return back home to their to their people, to their mother's home, and start over. And, and there's initial resistance. They both say, no, we're going to go with you. And then Orpah finally, in tears, changes her mind and returns home. But Ruth, who's devoted to, to Naomi, refuses. And she takes a solemn vow. She actually vows in Yahweh's name, Yahweh, the God of Israel, to never leave Naomi, even in death. So verse 16, she says, Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So she's going to stick with her until death. May Yahweh do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, just a little side note. When I read the scripture, a lot of times I'll throw in the name Yahweh, and you don't see that in your Bible. You're like, where is he, say, where is he finding that? It's not in my Bible. If you see the, the word Lord in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament, that is the name of God, the covenant name of the God of Israel. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. So when I say Yahweh, I'm just replacing that so we know who we're talking about, the God of Israel, Yahweh. Now, another reason Naomi may have, as she's, as she's speaking to her daughters-in-law, counsel these women to return home wasn't just because they would, wouldn't find a husband in Israel, but because of their ethnicity and how they might be treated if they were to accompany her back to Israel. These are Moabite women, not Israelite women. They're foreigners. And the Moabites were descended from an illicit union between Lot. You remember Lot, the nephew of Abraham, and one of his daughters. It was an incestuous relationship. Two sons were born to his two daughters, and one of them was named Moab. And the Moabites were the descendants of this relationship. So they were foreigners, and they were also relatives at the same time. And so when Israel approached the promised land under Moses, and they asked the Moabites if they could pass through, the Moabites resisted them, opposed them, tempted them to commit idolatry, and they actually hired a, a, a wizard, if you will, named Balaam to come and try to curse them. And because of this, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, the, the Moabites were actually under a generational curse. They were not, no Moabite was able to come and be part of the assembly of Yahweh to the 10th generation. So they were a cursed people in the eyes of Israel. But we see here God's heart for the foreigner and God's heart for all people, even Moabites. When this Moabite woman, Ruth, actually reflects God's heart of loyal, loving kindness toward the vulnerable, toward the destitute. She is actually acting like Yahweh as she loves Naomi, the widow. And as a foreigner, Ruth fears Yahweh. She walks in his ways. And loving Naomi, she doesn't just identify with Naomi, but she wants to identify with Naomi's people and with Naomi's God, Yahweh. So they return to Bethlehem, and as they get there, Naomi's family, her friends, they see her. They haven't seen her in a long time. They barely recognize her, and they say, Is this Naomi? In her, gr her grief and time have taken their toll, obviously. And she responds in verse 20, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
I went away full. In other words, I had husband and I had sons. And Yahweh has brought me back empty, husbandless and sonless. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And Naomi attributes her suffering to the severe hand of, of Yahweh Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. And she understands this, the situation that she's in. She understands her plight as being retributive justice. In other words, this is coming from God's hand as a punishment for what I've done. His hand is against me. And this is a negative note. So chapter 1 really leaves us in despair. If we, if we end there, we're in despair, we're in bitterness, we're in lament. We, we're living in that moment in fear. But chapter 2 comes along and poor and, desolate, des, uh, excuse me, poor and destitute, Ruth and Naomi, they settle in Bethlehem. And Ruth immediately, the next day, gets to work to support them, to go in and get some food by going out to glean in the fields during the harvest. And by law, poor people could go into people's fields after a harvest and pick up the leftover grain or the gleanings that the harvesters had left behind. And in fact, the the law even required landowners to exhibit generosity to the poor in their harvesting practices. So in Leviticus 23... It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you take in the grain, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. You you leave a little bit. Nor shall you gather the gleanings, the leftovers, after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, the foreigner, which is what Ruth was. I am Yahweh, your God. Deuteronomy 24. It says, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, which is what Ruth was, for the fatherless and for the widow, Ruth was a widow, that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. So Ruth is taking advantage of this law and she goes out to glean. It says that she happens to glean in the field of a close relative of Naomi's husband, whose name was Boaz. And he's identified in verse 1 of chapter 2 as a worthy man, an able man, a wealthy man. And when Boaz arrives at the, at the field, he quickly takes notice of Ruth, and he, he's heard all that she has done for Naomi, and he speaks kindly to her in verse 12. He says, Yahweh repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And you heard as Mary Lou read from Psalm 91 about the, the one who takes refuge and is blessed under the wings of of Yahweh the Almighty. And so Boaz meets her and he doesn't exclude her because she's a foreigner. He doesn't abuse her because she's a foreigner. He doesn't kick her out of her field. In fact, what he does is recognizes her character. He recognizes that in her loyal love to Naomi, she's actually reflecting the heart of God and he welcomes her. He recognizes that her actions reveal where she has placed her hope. She's placed her hope in Yahweh, the God of Israel. She's not running back to the gods of of Moab. She's coming under the protection of Yahweh. So not only does he welcome her into her fields, but he also welcomes her into God's family with generosity, with provision, with protection. 
So we have this Moabite, Ruth, who mirrors God's character in her kindness. And now we have Boaz, as he attends and, and, and feeds and takes care of Ruth, mirroring Yahweh in the same way. And she returns home that evening with an enormous sack of grain, like way more than you should get in one day of gleaning. And she brings that to Naomi, and Naomi rejoices not only over this huge harvest of grain that that Ruth has gleaned, but that she had met and found favor with Boaz. So in an instant, Naomi is singing a new tune, a tune of hope rather than despair. So verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by Yahweh, May, may Boaz be blessed by Yahweh, whose loving kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, Naomi is pronouncing a blessing from Yahweh upon Boaz because to her surprise, Yahweh has not actually abandoned her. And she has so recently thought, Yahweh's hand is against me. And all of a sudden, it's revealed to her that Yahweh is showing up and taking care of them. He remains faithful to his own loving kindness. He refuses to forsake those who seem to be forsaken. And brothers and sisters, just take a moment here to remember that if you are his, if you belong to God, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and he has claimed you, he will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. This entire story reminds us that that God's providential hand, his hand of guiding sovereignty is at work Even in the smallest things, even in the most seemingly insignificant lives, you would ask the question, why would God take notice of Ruth? Why would he take notice of Naomi? Why would he take notice of you or of me? God's hand is at work in every single one of our lives. There's no such thing as a coincidence. There's nothing accidental. It says that Ruth just happened upon Boaz's field, but that was no accident. The fact that Boaz was a close relative and a redeemer is no accident. God is always faithfully working out his plan to show his faithful, loving kindness to his people. So in the midst of God's plan, now Ruth and Naomi are going to hatch a plan. And they're going to hatch a plan to appeal to Boaz as this kinsman redeemer. Now this is an idea, this idea of the redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, that's, that's foreign to our culture. Another thing here that, that we don't understand because it's not part of our story so it requires a little bit of explanation. The kinsman redeemer was a, was a built-in social safety net of sorts, but it was mainly concerned with property. So for instance, circumstances could come about. that You, were, you had property as in Israel. You had an, an inheritance. But circumstances like poverty or, or the death of a family member or a famine could put you in such dire straits that you had to sell your inheritance, your land, for some reason or another. However, In Israel, theoretically, no land could be sold permanently. It was always the possession of the ones to whom it was given. So you could buy back your land, you could redeem your land at any time. An individual could redeem their own land by going out and scraping up enough money in order to go and and buy it back. The second option would be to have a close relative or a kinsman redeemer come and buy that land back on your behalf. And then if neither of those things took place, the third thing was you could wait till the year of Jubilee. 
right? The year of Jubilee, the 50th year, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, when everything was supposed to go back to its rightful owner. Everything was supposed to be returned to those uh, whose inheritance it was. So in the first two cases, if you were to go back and buy your own land back or have a kinsman redeemer do it for you, this act of redemption would cost. It would cost something. A kinsman redeemer to step in on your behalf would have to be motivated by love. They would have to be motivated by a love for you and a relationship and a care to sacrificially pay a price and take a loss for your benefit and for your good. And in the specific case of Naomi and Ruth, the the idea of a kinsman redeemer also carried with it not just the property idea, but the duties of a leveret marriage, like I talked about a few moments ago, where a close relative, a brother or a cousin or someone would step in to provide an heir for the deceased relative by marrying the widow, as Moses said in Deuteronomy 25, so that person who had died, so that his name would not be blotted out of Israel. And for someone to actually neglect this duty or refuse it was considered to be a shameful thing. So Naomi advises Ruth to approach Boaz by night, to go to him and request that he fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer. So after he's worked all day harvesting and, and, and um, threshing, gla- threshing grain, he's feasted, he lies down at the threshing floor and he goes to sleep. And, and uh, Ruth knows where he's at. She approaches him and she quietly lays down at his feet. And later in the night, he startles awake and asks her who she is. And she replies in verse 9, I'm Ruth, your servant. And then she says this, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, Boaz had previously complimented Ruth for taking refuge under Yahweh's wings, and now she looks to this worthy and upright representative of Yahweh to offer her shelter in Yahweh's name, to be that shelter for her, including taking her, who's a much younger woman, he's much older, and foreign as well, in marriage. So verse 10, he says this in response. May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. That is her kindness to Naomi. You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. There's that word, fear. We've had hope, we've had fear. Do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. The Hebrew word that's translated worthy can mean strong, it can mean able, and it can mean morally worthy. And it complements the description of Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1, where it talks about Boaz being a, a worthy man. It's the same word there. And it also echoes some famous proverbs about a woman of noble character. So in Proverbs chapter 12, 4, an excellent, there's that, that's the same Hebrew word, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. And more famously, Proverbs chapter 31, 10, an excellent, same word, an excellent wife who can find, or a wife of noble character, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Now, this word is used three times in the Hebrew Old Testament to refer to women. These are two of those times. The other time is here in Ruth. 
So Ruth is the only woman in the Old Testament who is referred to as worthy. She's the only specific individual woman who fulfills Proverbs 31. She is the ideal woman, according to what Boaz says of her right here. And he has been observing Ruth. He's been weighing her character along with the entire community. And despite her ethnicity, despite her status as poor, a poor widow, she has been found to be worthy, to be excellent, to be of noble character. She is the living and breathing example par excellence of the Proverbs 31 woman. And in response to her humble request, Boaz agrees to take on the responsibility and act as a redeemer for Ruth. But there's a problem. There's a crisis that must first be addressed because there's another kinsman redeemer that's in line ahead of him. So without delay, in chapter 4, Boaz approaches this other family member, presents the issue to him in the presence of all the elders of the city, or at least a good amount of them, that an opportunity has arisen to purchase the land of Naomi's deceased husband and his sons. And this unnamed redeemer, is he's agreeable to this deal. It would seem like it would add to his net worth, add to his value, add to his inheritance. Sure, I'll redeem it. He would even be okay, I think, in this instance of taking Naomi along with it as a wife. But when he realizes that the deal includes marrying a Moabite woman, Ruth, he gets cold feet. Because for him, to marry Ruth would would quite likely be ethnically abhorrent, but more than that, it would put his own estate at risk. If he were to give Ruth a son, that child would legally be the heir of Ruth's deceased husband, and he would be able to claim that land of inheritance in the end. So it wouldn't add to this man's bottom line at all. He wouldn't really profit from the deal. In fact, he he would probably take a net loss. That's what redemption requires, right? Redemption requires taking a loss to buy back what was lost. So rather than do the noble thing, he seems to opt for self-interest. He forsakes the right of redemption, and he gives permission to Boaz to claim that right, to become the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. Now, of course, if you're reading the story, that's exactly what you want to happen, right? Crisis averted. We've got the love story. The Hallmark movie can finish now. Ruth and Boaz can get married. This is the exact resolution we wanted anyway, so we can all kind of breathe a collective sigh of joyful relief. And when the deal is done, the men of Bethlehem, they pronounce a blessing on Boaz. Verse 11, May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily, there's that word again, worthily. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, he went into her, and Yahweh gave her conception and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. Remember, she said she went away empty, or she went away full, she came back empty. In other words, she came back dead. 
She came back with nothing. And this one will be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So in the end, this is really, really a story of redemption and of resurrection. And the women speak of the child that's born to Ruth, and they name him Obed, which is, this is interesting. All the women of the town get to name the kid. I don't know where that comes from, but they name him Obed as Naomi's, they identify the child, Obed, as Naomi's redeemer. This is surprising because the narrative all this way has been pointing us to Boaz as being the redeemer. And even larger than that is Yahweh being the redeemer. But they are clearly referring to the child as the redeemer, whom your daughter-in-law has given birth to. And so Naomi's story brings to mind for me one of the quieter miracles that Jesus performed in a little town called Nain. You can read this story in Luke chapter 7. But Jesus comes across a a funeral procession. He's with a crowd of people. They come to this town called Nain. And there's a funeral procession. And the, the dead man is the son, the only son of a widow. So here we have in this story with Jesus meeting a woman who's alone and destitute, who's without a husband or a son. She has no one to protect or provide for her. Perhaps she too has renamed herself Mara and complained about the bitter hand of God that seems to be against her. But here's what happens in the story. Luke chapter 7, verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier and the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And in a moment, Jesus restores this woman's life, giving it back to her in the form of her son. And not only is her son resurrected, but in a sense, so is she. Because now she has hope when she had none. And undoubtedly, her joy is restored as well. And in response to this, all the people proclaim about Jesus in Luke 7, 16. God has visited his people. Now that is the message of the book of Ruth. It's a book of resurrection. It's a message of new life, restored life. Naomi left Bethlehem full. Decades later, she came back empty and bitter, lifeless, wondering if God had forsaken her. But God, in his faithful promise and his providence and his loving kindness, gives her back a son. And this son, Obed, in a sense, is her redeemer. But even more, this, this newborn child is proof that God is a faithful redeemer. And in his resurrecting power, he has resurrected her from a dungeon of despair and grief. He's given her life back to her, turning her mourning into dancing and giving her joy. And the book concludes by telling us that Boaz and Ruth are King David's great-grandparents. And even though their story seems insignificant, God gives it deep significance in his faithful providence and loving kindness. 
And generations later, about a thousand years later, they will have another descendant born, this time to a poor young maiden in the same little town of Bethlehem. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, a restorer of life and a giver of hope. And even though Boaz and Obed brought redemption in their own ways, no one is a redeemer like Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent his son into this world to give his very life to redeem a people for himself, to offer them refuge and shelter under his wings, and to restore all that was lost. Jesus is our great kinsman redeemer. And once again, we're reminded that the hopes and fears of all the years find their perfect answer in Jesus. In Jesus, who is the one who restores us to life, who turns our mourning into dancing, and who gives us true joy. Will you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for this little story, and this little story of Jesus, of one of your ancestors, two of your ancestors, and how their faithfulness was rewarded and how you used them to bring about over the centuries a great deliverance through our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We're grateful for the redemptive work that you do. We're grateful that you restore our lives. We're grateful that you take our mourning away and give us joy. And even when we feel forsaken, God, we are not. Not because of anything we've done, but because you are so good. You are faithful to your loving kindness. So today, Lord, we look to Jesus, our great Redeemer, our King. Thank you for buying us back who were lost and bringing us back to God. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.